Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 355, Help a Brother Out, recorded April 7th. 2019 and brought to you by Element Opie Productions. ElementOpie.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Drive Time Radio for Geeks. I'm your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockroach, and joining us this week, back again, the duo, the gooey kid, Seth Anderson and Miles the Oxygenier Wakeham, your two stalwart ho- co hosts. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, Mark, and welcome back, faithful Opieites. We're glad you're Opieing on. Yeah, it's been like weeks since I've been back on, but hello, everybody. Yeah, right. So it's good to have everybody back. I trust, Miles, that you're uh, road tripping to see the fast car driver of your choice was, was fun. <laughs> yeah, very epic. Very epic. I can give you the whole spiel, but it will take me like 10 minutes. <laughs> so did, did your guy win? Well, he almost 40 laps out of 60, he's leading, easily leading, and then somebody crashed. And, of course, he hadn't pitted in time, so everybody else got out in front of him, and that was all she wrote. So, no, we didn't win, but, uh, man, I had some fun. It was great. We ended up doing a grid walk, which I'd never done before. So right before the, if anyone's ever gone to a motorsport event, all the cars line up on the grid before they send them out on the track, before the lights, you know, all go and the, they drop the flag or whatever um and normally the only people out there with the cars are like the crew and the engineers and the driver in the car obviously but they let a small group of us uh out on the middle of the track right before the cars started racing and i was lucky enough to get out there on the grid which was a lot of fun so yeah and of course that was a free service provided just you know because right uh no yeah. it was a <laughs> it was a paddock ticket thing but it wasn't expensive uh, it was surprising it was in um it was in austin at the circuit of the americas or cota as we would call it and uh it's a beautiful track it's purpose-built it's only about i don't know six seven years old and um absolutely fantastic place and very affordable i was quite surprised so you could do that whole race for the whole weekend for maybe I guess about 150 bucks or something. And then if you pay an extra 20 odd, you get to hang out with the team and go behind the pit wall and well, talk to the engineers and everything. That's cheaper than dinner in a movie. Yeah, it is. Of course, you got to get to Austin. Well, there is that, but you know, there's barbecue. <laughs> so why not? Did you go to the Salt Lick? Uh, let's see. We did. No, I didn't go to the Salt Lick. I okay. went to Ironworks. Uh, oh, that's pretty good. It's not my favorite, yeah, but it's pretty good. That was good. And we went to um, <laughs> we went to one that was on the. We actually ended up staying in Marble Falls, which is about an hour out of Dallas. But that's because all the hotels were ridiculously over uh, in Dallas. What I'm saying, Austin. Right. The hotels were ridiculously overpriced, and we'd stayed out there before. And on the way, there's a little barbecue joint off the side of the road, uh, and I can't even remember the name of it. It's all good barbecue, I think. Something, something yeah. like that. In Texas, and, roadside, middle of the road, not very good barbecue is better than barbecue everywhere else. I, this was the best ever. And here's the craziest thing. Seven years ago, uh, myself and my buddy went there when the Formula One was in Austin. Seven years ago, we're sitting out there on the tables eating barbecue, and the pit master comes out and he goes, Hey, you guys back again, huh? Haven't seen you for a while. How you been? I'm like, yeah, dude, it was seven years and you've seen us once in your life. <laughs> and he remembered us. Wow. So what do you do? That's cool. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Anyway. So that's why Miles wasn't here two weeks ago. And the reason we didn't do a show last week is that I was out, um, started my family vacation. We went up to Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, uh, visited Dollywood, uh, which is um, basically like any other amusement park in the world, only it's got Dolly Parton's name on it. Um, I got to say, I, just shout out to Dollywood. They are a class act organization there. The place was clean. Even the bathrooms were clean. The bath. Think about that. An amusement park men's room, and I'm using the word clean to describe it. Have you ever experienced that? I haven't. Not even at Disney. Um, the The staff were friendly. The prices were, you know, reasonable for what you get. I mean, it's twenty dollars for a corn dog and fries, but you are at an amusement park. That's that's typical for amusement park. So, now uh, shout out to Dollywood. Uh, great time, great family entertainment sort of thing. Um, so that's all I got to say about that in particular. We just we had a good time with that. Um, on the way back, however, not so much good time. The old mommy van alternator went out. And anybody who knows anything about cars know that alternators work today and don't work tomorrow. More, more specifically, they work at noon and don't work at noon 03. Um, it's just like that. So we're driving along. The battery light comes on. We stop in Knoxville, Tennessee for lunch. I come out and I can't start the car. It's a three plus year old battery. Okay, it's time. So I go to the local Sam's, pick up a new battery, put it in, and uh, the battery light still doesn't go off. Um, and then about 100 miles later in Chattanooga, Tennessee, we killed that battery and we were stuck on Interstate 75 in a construction zone uh, <laughs> with, a, with a dead car and um, called my insurance company. They called a tow truck, gave them the wrong address, um, then also gave them the wrong phone number. I'm going to call you out Allstate Insurance. You screwed this in every way possible, Allstate Insurance. <laughs> um, sent the tow truck to the wrong place, not even close to the right place, like seven miles away. It's not like I was in the wrong neighborhood or something. No. The, they made me give them the GPS coordinates, and they had to have just written it down wrong um, because in GPS, one digit is you know, could be a hundred miles. But anyway, they sent them totally to the wrong place, then gave them the wrong phone number so that they couldn't even call me to find the place. And like an hour later, sitting on the interstate with cars zooming past us, um, in a disabled van, finally they sent me a text message and said, this is the place we've dispatched. And I called that place and the dispatcher said, honey, we've been trying to find you. We don't know where you are. <laughs> so they came and because of the construction traffic, they actually couldn't get over. They passed us. And the, tri- the tow truck gri- driver called me and said, I'm sorry, I see you there. I just can't get over there. I'm going to go to the exit. I'm going to turn around. But in this traffic, that's going to be about 20 minutes. So that that happened. They The dispatch, the tow truck called the police. The state trooper couldn't get to us. Like, it's not that people didn't want to move. There was no place for them to move. We sat and watched the state trooper's lights about a mile away in the mirror sitting there. Nothing he could do. So finally, everybody got there, and the tow truck driver gets there and says, um, all right, so I'm happy to take your car where you need to go, but I can only put two people in, the, in my truck. What, what about the rest of you, the other three passengers in your van? Huh. So I do what any good nerd would do. I downloaded the Uber app for the first time, logged in, and uh, got some not entirely sane person uh, who had a minivan that was only barely more running than mine. And they came and picked us up on the side of the road. Uh, and I found out something interesting. Uh, Uber drivers don't know where you want to go until they get there. Right? They just get a call and say, this is where you are. And then they get there 
and and they find out so this uber driver found out when i got there uh, when they got there like 7 30 p.m on a friday night that i wanted them to drive 90 miles one way um, <laughs> uh, which to my to their credit they were game for so we went to the we'd been stuck in that car for about four hours and so the first place i had her take us was where we could pee <laughs> we all ran to the gas station we emptied our bladders and then bought snacks and headed out towed the tow truck driver he headed that way so towing the the van 90 miles plus the uber which of those two you think was the more expensive thing the tow truck miles you have a guess i was gonna say the uber yeah yeah the uber cost nearly double what the tow truck cost Oh, wow. and that's because of the time of day yeah yeah so is uh i could look it up but it, i don't have the exact numbers but it's it's, it's around 300 dollars by the time i left the tip for the uber and and about 280 for the uh the tow truck and so i, I, you know, I could have had them tow us someplace local but then i still have a dead car in a city i don't know i gotta bring a hotel room because it's seven o'clock at night i'm not gonna get a mechanic and then I got to tow him again to the mechanic, right? So I, I did the math and figured the $500 was about the wash there, what it would be, and I'd get to sleep in my own bed. So Uber did great, but dang, did I pay for it. Vacations are way more expensive than you think they're going to be. That's all I have to say about that. Man, that's a lot of cash, I guess. <laughs> you know, fortunately, because of the principles that we have talked about so recently on this show... I had an emergency fund. I had that money set aside. It wasn't a deal breaker. I now have to refill my emergency fund, right? So yeah, I past tense on the emergency that's right. fund. <laughs> I had had an emergency fund. Yes. Um, so you know, uh, th- let that be a lesson to you. If you follow, if you practice what you preach, you actually have money to pay for things like that. All right. That's all I got to say about that. So as I understand it, you guys were talking about hooking up. Not in the Netflix and chill sense, but actually meeting uh, at some point. So have you, uh, uh, did that happen? Yeah. Who wants to talk about it? Tell them, Seth. Okay, well, (laughs) one, I finally got Miles the old vintage computer that's been sitting at the top of my stairs for like a year and a half. So that was (laughs) cool. But then we met up at, you know, one of... You know, if it if it's not heaven on earth, it's like the step below uh, Texas Day Brazil oh. in uptown. And you know, here's how my, I didn't even make it to the salad bar. I just started ordering meat, and this is the first time. Every time I've been, it's always been the uh, chicken wrapped in bacon. But today it, or this time, it was the filet mignon. It was absolutely awesome. And of course, I told the waiter, I was like, "Hey, I like my beef extremely well done," and they took care of me, brought out good food. Uh, just went and ate a ridiculous amount and had great time talking with Miles and uh, his friend from Australia. The, he was a, he was a co-host on the podcast. Um, I can't remember his name. Was it Malcolm? Nick? No, Malcolm. Malcolm. Yeah. yeah. So I had a great time. You know, we just hung out, and so I, I traded an old computer for a Texas Day Brazil um, meal. So I was happy with the trade. <laughs> that sounds like a fair trade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was fun. We had, we, had a, we had a blast. It sounded like we were like doing live podcasting at the table with steak. <laughs> I wish yes. you'd recorded that. That could have just been an episode. We could just <laughs> just publish that in the feed and call it good. <laughs> no, it was fun. We had a blast. 
Cool. Uh, I do want one other thing that doesn't have anything to do with travel. Uh, as I like to give movie reviews, I saw uh, last night, courtesy of Netflix, uh, the movie Instant Family with Mark Wahlberg. Uh, the reason I was interested in that movie is it was filmed at my kid's high school. So huh. it was it was kind of a, a fun little seeing people and even some of the extras. My kids weren't extras, but there were some kids that they knew that were extras in it. Uh, but I, what I didn't expect was a really good heart-wrenching sort of movie about fostering and adoption um really solid um solid performance good movie um made me cry you know uh so i just have to say if if you have you know if you have a family if you have a soft spot for kids and that sort of thing it's a it's a movie you're going to enjoy it's not going to win any awards or anything but it's a good solid movie uh, and definitely other than some salty language that i would certainly rather not uh, expose my 10 year old to uh, but it's appropriate to I mean you get a foster kid out of a crack house they're going to use salty language right so um, it was appropriate type of language um, but other than that it was a very uh, wholesome movie so instant family check it out you'll see my kids high school mm-hmm. cool it's one I would like to see it looks like it looked like it would be a good movie and uh, you saw you finished I guess the Jack Ryan series Yes, um, very enjoyable. It holds. Uh, it does a very one thing. It felt kind of rushed at the end. Like I would have seen the last two episodes. I'd love to have seen at least one more episode. But they seem to have a limit of eight show seasons, and that's all you're going to get. Um, but no, it was it was really good. You know the the effects are. I mean, if they're not like movie level, they're better than TV level effects. Um, And, you know, it's characters created by Tom Clancy written by someone else. And you can tell that throughout the series. They hit several of the points of his relationship. But, you know, the the teens being a much darker era than the, you know, 80s, whenever the books first started coming out. you can tell it's not Tom Clancy writing, but they stayed faithful to the characters, I think. And it was very, very enjoyable, very good. Um, like I said, other than it seemed like it ended too quickly. Um, I would have liked to have seen maybe, like I say, one more episodes worth of like everything climaxes and then it's over like that. And there's like, there's no winding stuff up. There's just like, Oh, we're ready for season two and chopped off. So hopefully it'll get renewed, but I liked it. So for all your high school English teachers out there, you'll be proud to know that I remembered the word denouement, the, <laughs> the, or denouement as my Spanish uh, English teacher used to call it. Um, that's the ending after the climax. Yes. It's important to have that. Yes. It, it seems, does seem to be a lost art. The, the cold open is you know something that i think Stephen botko invented in the 70s right and that's that like the whole thing is that we'll drop you in here here's your thing and then the whole movie or the whole series that seems to be the way it is now uh, and there's no there's no story arc i'm sounding like an old guy but yeah anyway i know i mean and there's you know like i say it it could be it could be better 
but it was really good. And so I think if you're if you're a fan of action, there's definitely plenty of action in there. If you're a fan of story, there's some good story. And then, you know, if you're a fan of characters, there's some good character arcs. And, you know, they, they throw you in. They do some really good establishing shots of just telling the backstory of someone or teasing the backstory of someone with just a couple of frames of film. And then it gets worked out over the movie and you see characters grow and you know a couple of places it feels like it was forced there but overall they did a really good job of telling the story in my opinion awesome and just a a quick little personal thing i i've made a couple of mentions to it here and there but i haven't actually talked about it at all but you know i'm i i believe in being uh open and honest with this uh with this audience you're not just a an audience you're your family um, my oldest daughter has been dealing with some health issues for a little over a year now. Uh, and finally last week, actually just before the day before, uh, we went on vacation, we got a diagnosis. We now know what the problem is and we know how to begin to treat it. Uh, it is not a curable thing, but it is a treatable thing. She can have, uh, an, a relatively normal life. And in fact, some of the treatments, uh, and strategies were able enabled her to enjoy herself on uh, a family vacation. I, I saw I saw my little girl laugh, uh, and I hadn't seen that in a long time. So, um, just some some good news there. Uh, it is a heart condition that will need to be monitored pretty much for the rest of her life. But at least we now know what it is, and we know how to treat it. And it turns out one of the world leading experts is about eight miles down the road from us. So that cool. all that worked out well for us. Cool. That's good. Congratulations. That's good to find that stuff out. Yeah. It can be horrible living without knowing what's going on. I mean, I can right. only imagine. So that's really good. Yeah. We, we've been to neurologists. We've been to um, cardiologists. We've been to, you know, specialists after specialists, everybody ruling things out. Right. But nobody telling us what it is. We've done MRIs. We've done imaging. We've done all kinds of stuff. And again, all we knew is what it wasn't. And now we know what it is. And that, uh, that, that's a weight lifted off. Right. Good so, job. Anyway, that's all I have to say about that. Um, Seth, you lost a hard drive, Seth. That can be almost as bad as, as dealing. <laughs> I've got my uh, hard drive. I went to pull some data off of it. It's my, uh, it's my terabyte USB drive that I just keep in my backpack and I pulled it out, stuck it in the computer and I didn't get to pop up immediately. After a while, it said, this drive needs to be formatted before it can be used. And I went, no, because that, that's my backup strategy is <laughs> my external hard drive. So um, I'm going to, after this is over, I'm going to turn my computer into a spin right repair <laughs> machine and let it run for a while. Um, and so hopefully that will take care of it. Um, Otherwise, I'm going to be kind of bummed out because, like I say, my, my data is on there and I need my data. And, you know, and after I get it fixed, then I will be buying another one or two. And, you know, because if you don't have your data, what is it? Uh, in three places at two locations, you don't really have your data. So I have my data in one place in one location and, uh, you know, do what we said all those episodes back, <laughs> right. not, not our actual practice on backing up data, back up your data, man. Yeah. <laughs> Spinrite has only ever failed to do anything on one drive. And that was a physical 
the spindle didn't spin. The spin right can't help that. Every other thing I've thrown at it in almost 25 years of using it, it's always made the situation better. It didn't always make it get everything back, but it's always made things better. So I'm a big believer in spindle right. Even on yeah. SSDs, it, it does somehow work magic. All I want, I mean, you know, all I've got to do is like be able to read the data. So, I mean, if it can recognize it's been formatted, then I'm probably going to be okay. But All right. All right. So the uh, topic this week, help a brother out. This is actually a, uh, a, a follow-up conversation that I had with a group of friends around uh, seafood uh, after church today. And I thought it was such an imp- interesting topic that uh, intelligent people uh, across the world always have some opinion on one way or the other. Uh, I thought that I would um, uh, bring it to, to these guys. And I'm going to do what they, they always did in debate club in high school. I'm going to start with a posit. All right, whether you agree or disagree with this, this is the position we're taking. All right, so you, you, if you disagree with the position, you have to argue. If you, if you agree with it, that's not, so. There's two posits that I make. Posit the first: because you live in the U.S., you are a rich person. Compared to the world, you're a rich person just by birthright. Posit the second: because you are a rich person, you have a responsibility. To those who have less than you do. Go. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. Step, uh, qu- statement number one, because you live in the US, you're a rich person. Uh, disagree. Um, it, it changes. When I first came to the United States in 89... No, let me go forward five years from there. When I returned, when I, okay, I lived in the US from 89 until 95. I went back to Australia from 95 and through 99, and I returned back to the US in 99. I've been here ever since. So in that last segment of time, I lived in a house in Australia, which cost, I think, for two people, and my, our daughter was, man, she was just born. So she was a toddler, like two, three years old. Total cost of living per month, about 3500 Australian dollars. Um, I won't say equivalent US dollar or whatever because the wages were about the same. So you could say one to one, about a similar amount of money, but about 3500 Australian dollars to live not including rent, we had a freehold house. Um, fast forward to the United States today. Now, we're supposed to have a 2% inflation rate per year, but even with that out of the way. Today, I don't think I could live in that same world for, for the same utility costs, food, insurances and all the other things that go along with being in the United States, I would be looking at somewhere around about $6,500 a month for that very same kind of lifestyle. And the thing is, if I, if I was to then flip back to Australia and try and do it, now it would be nearly 10000 Australian dollars today for the same thing. Again, inflation, currency, float, all that sort of stuff. It's very expensive. And so I've got uh, rental properties, which are uh, which we rent to lower income, uh, uh, you know, units, so tenants, 
And I feel for these people because for some, they're, they're, they're making $25,000 you know, a year and trying to make it on that. I don't know how they can do it. That's poverty. In, in this world, how do you pay for health insurance? How do you pay for power? How do you pay for a car? How do you put your kid through an education? How do you go out to dinner like once a month? I mean, all these things cost tons of money to live a reasonable life in this country, in, in the United States. And I would say now that that infection is spread to almost every part of the Western world. It is super expensive to have an expected life unless you're willing to live on beans and rice, rice and beans, and uh, live a total frugality-based life, which you could do. I would then argue if you choose that lifestyle, it would be no different to, to being in a, I don't know, maybe a, a part of Lagos, Nigeria, or, or somewhere like that, in which the cost of living is that because that's all you've got and that's all your options are. So you can choose to live like that here and try and get by on a minimum. And I guarantee the guy in Nigeria is probably going to be doing better off than you. So I... I don't buy that America is a rich country. I think that we, what we have is we have no glass, no, no ceiling on opportunity. And for anybody willing to go out there and seize that and be smart and work hard and learn and adapt and all of that good stuff, you can be Warren Buffett. But if you're not able to do that, there's something holding you back, situation, privilege, education, whatever it is, I don't think this is such a rich place. All right, so before we move on to the second one, Seth, you, you, you speak on point number one. Okay, so I won't say the whole world, but a large segment of the world because there is a social net that is available in this country still uh, that isn't available in other places, and there is a willingness to help those that are down on their luck that doesn't seem to exist as much in the other developed nations from my limited interactions with them. I could be totally wrong on that, but that's the stereotypical American trope. So we'll go with that and feel free to prove me wrong with data. That's fine. So it's hard because, you know, $10 in some countries, you can, you can go a month with that here ten dollars you know will get you a day i mean yeah you can do ramen and you know beans and rice but you got to have somewhere to to heat that up at and so whereas other places it goes further so yes there is more i see there's more wealth but then there's also more debt and the thing that Here's why I'm going to reject your first posit is because most of the world does not have the ball and chain of debt that Americans willingly put on and grow day after day. So, oh, yeah, I make $45,000 a year. Woohoo, that's a lot of money. But, oh, wait, let's add my debt to that and my debt payments. Whereas, you know, if you own nothing and you owe nothing, then, you know, by the pure numbers, you actually have more than me because I have a net deficit in my life and you're at zero. So you're actually ahead of me. Um, so, Yes, there is opportunity and there is the ability, there is the opportunity to work. And, you know, and that's something that 
us natural born people here don't seem to grasp the opportunity because you know when he knocks on the door he's usually dressed in coveralls and looks like work and we don't want to do that so the opportunity's there but i don't know how much effort is there to seize it but there isn't as much wealth as we would like to believe we put a veneer of wealth over our crumbling infrastructure and ask the rest of the world not to look too closely at it all right so uh arguments of this type are uh put out in absolutes for a reason right it's almost impossible to agree entirely with 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 with, with uh, each of them i will say i do not agree that all americans are rich that by birthright you're rich a a homeless kid uh living in his car because his mom is a crack addict has the same life in america or pretty close to it as a homeless orphan in you know uganda uh or or you know anywhere else in the world but those exceptions aside anybody living anything close to what americans would consider a normal life is absolutely among the wealthiest two percent of the world um com- when you can compare to the world so uh, miles your uh family of four living on twenty five thousand dollars a year is absolutely among the wealthiest percentages of the world when you take in uh countries like south africa and india and uh you know vietnam and places where uh south uh, north korea places where uh opportunities are squashed um and so i i agree about 87 or 88 percent with the the deposit that because you are an american you are rich everybody everybody listening to this qualifies as rich if you can afford to listen to internet streaming entertainment you are rich. There's so much support system that has to be put in place for you to enable that. You are among the richest people on the planet. And I don't know why we Americans are so afraid to be called rich. It's somewhere in our culture uh, that we are programmed from early on to hate rich, all while trying to become them. Like uh, everybody in America says they're middle class, right? That that uh, that family of four living on minimum wage will call themselves middle class. And that businessman making $400,000 a year will call himself middle class. Everybody wants to be in the middle. Nobody wants to admit they're poor. Nobody wants to admit they're rich. I don't understand the social stigma to that. But I believe that most people, the, the large majority of people, 80 plus percent of Americans qualify as some of the richest people. We have the richest poor people in the world. Our poor people have cell phones and big screen TVs and, and heat in the winter and air conditioning in the summer and, and are overweight due to an excess of food. That's our poor people. Well, let me ask you a question. Can you define the word rich? No, because it is relative. All, rich wealth is always relative. Uh, anybody who has more than the next person is, is rich by comparison. So looking at my life now as a... Uh, um, you know, sort of a mid-range, uh, not even management type, analyst type uh, in the, the tech world, through my eyes uh, of my four-year-old self, I am stinking rich because I grew up, you know, in that you were talking, that $25,000 would have been probably two to three times what my mom's annual income was growing up. Uh, we, we were 
we were Salvation Army kids. We we only ate when we were at school, and they were the free food. We didn't eat on the weekends. And during the summers, it was really hard. Those were when we were we were doing our grocery shopping. That's what we called it, grocery shopping, down at the Salvation Army while you walk those aisles of canned goods. Uh, so through those eyes, uh, I'm the wealthiest man. I, I, I am beyond my own imagination of a four-year-old uh, in the wealth I have right now. But even then, even then, I was rich compared to many other places in the country, compared to the Indian slum dog. Um, so it, it's all about comparison. You can't, you can't be rich without comparison to somebody who's poor, and you can't be poor without comparison to somebody who's rich. Okay. Okay. I mean, I'm, see, I sort of, there's, there's part of me that sees rich as being a numerically measurable um, value, you know, dollars in the bank, wealth, that sort of thing. And, and if, if you applied that principle, the, the way I look at it is wealth is the amount of money you have in your pocket after your needs are paid for. It's not your amount of money that you've got coming in before you pay for your needs. It's what you've got left after. And Seth hit the nail on the head that we consider a lot of people in America as being rich but in fact, I would argue that they're poor because they're not rich because they have an abundance of money left over at the end of the month. They're rich in their minds, but they're carrying hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loans and, and hundreds of thousands of dollars of credit card debt and cars they don't own and houses they don't own and no actual tangible wealth. Therefore, they're negative, they're in debt, and they're not rich. So if you take the debt off the table, we don't have a very rich society here at all. Um, and then if you, if you measure, I would also extend the concept of rich by saying you also have to measure in the um, factors of life which we all need that have to be provided or have to be obtained. And, and the biggest one of those would be healthcare. The, the fact that we don't have an easily available healthcare system without uh, a need to buy it, whether that be um, in taxes, whether that be in uh, insurance premiums or whatever the form is, or pay cash to your doctor or whatever. The fact is that there's a barrier to entry based on economic class in that area unless you want Medicare, unless you want to go to the local clinic. Uh, and there's a quality issue there. We have a low life expectancy compared to most other Western countries that don't have that. We have a very, very high obesity level in this country. We have a very, very high uh, drug overdose rate. We have a decreasing life expectancy over US males on average. And, and these are not factors that represent to me a rich country. These are country, fa these are factors that countries like Guatemala would have or El Salvador might have. And yet we turn our backs on those things because we look at how much money comes in the W-2, but not how much money of that you actually keep in your pocket that didn't get sort of squandered away on student loan debt and all these other things, which, to be honest, Guatemala doesn't have. Now, granted, you okay, I'll, I'll give you a great example. A friend of mine who was a bank teller told me one day he wanted to become a doctor. Now, he was from Afghanistan, but he worked at my local bank, and I got to know him very well. And I said to him, dude, how on earth are you ever going to afford to pay for an education to become a doctor? 
And he said, really easy. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to the Dominican Republic for two years. I'm going to study there because it's almost free. He did that. He came back. He interned in Florida and he became a GP and now he's a specialist. And this kid's not carrying around the sort of debt loads that most are. But he was willing to go over there and do it. So I look at that and go, well, is it America that's rich? Or in this particular case, was it the Dominican Republic which is rich? And, and should he look at himself as being an American? Or should he look at himself as being a human being who's willing to travel where he's treated best? And that's the kind of – I know I'm kind of off the American rich – but I'm trying to say it's not necessarily as simple as that because pe- many, many people who live in the United States are not Americans. They're immigrants. And many of them are not here permanently. And many of them will find that by traveling from point to point, they can get everything they need without incurring the massive debt load. But if they were stuck in the United States having to become a doctor, he'd be carrying around half a million dollars of student loan debt. And he would not be rich. So, you see, it's not a – I can't see it as a sort of a two-dimensional argument per se. Okay. Seth, you have any thoughts on that? No, I mean – well, I mean, I always have thoughts, but um, we just don't – we don't – our problem is – well, it's it's the same reason of the American companies that, you know, we're we're selling our future – because we want what looks good now. So the reason that, and again, this is a stereotype that applies to a large swaths of uh, the country. The reason we project wealth is because we have our iPhone 15 in one hand and our Starbucks mocha frappuccino extra grande soy decaf latte in the other. And we have to get that Starbucks every day and we have to get the brand new phone every time it comes out. You know, it's only $50 a month. Well, $100 get you a phone that does 90% of that. And so pocket that money and get some other income coming in so you're not dependent on your job and you can then be rich and live the posit one that, hey, we are wealthy because we have money coming in. And if we don't go to work today, we still have money coming in. I mean, you know, traditionally wealth used to be defined as you knew where tomorrow's meal was coming from. If, If you didn't have to work for today's food, you already had it in your barns. You were rich for large portions of the history of our planet that has been the case for the human species and in large segments of the population of the world that is still the case today. So by that standards, yeah, this country is filthy rich and filthy being the literal word there because we do have access to all of this stuff and we treat it with contempt because we don't value it. And we would rather chase this shiny thing that does nothing but steal from us later in life. So doesn't really apply to anything, but, and sorry. I, I, I do think that's interesting though, that the, both of you, you know, went on these sort of tirades and then came back with an <laughs> apology for the fact that it didn't, it, it wasn't the thing. I, I find that interesting because it, it's, I don't know if it's uniquely American, but I, we'll call it uniquely Western, um, that, um, we have to, we have to, we have to apologize for any discussions about wealth. Like I, I wanted to, um, just it just tell you how much i make i can't do that if i do that my company can fire me right that it, it's one of the things that for some reason 
it's it's so forbidden in this country to talk about how much you make make that it's actually a fireable offense where i work um so it's you but you both basically said something uh in different words that i want to latch on to um you both said what's left over when you've met your needs miles those were your words and, and seth you were um something along those same words uh i can't remember exactly what it was but my point is rich is having your needs met and having anything left over anything left over so if you have enough left over to service debt you are rich that's my posit uh historically speaking looking across anybody but the the kings right so there there was the royalty there was the you know a hundred people in a country of hundreds of thousands or millions right so you're talking really rarefied air here um historically speaking if you can meet your needs seth if you know where your next meal is coming from you are rich and and i think if we as westerners would embrace that concept a little more and say you know uh to to go fall back on my judeo-christian beliefs you know give us this day our daily bread if i have what i need today i'm good if i have anything left over after today i'm wealthy that's the lesson i try to teach my kids when my when my six-year-old looked up at me and said daddy are we rich my answer was absolutely we are so rich you are so blessed you have so much more than you need you need to praise god that you are rich yes we are rich and i'm not ashamed of that that's why i asked the question to for you to define the term rich because I, I would not agree with the definition. At least, agree is the wrong word. I would not share the same definition. Because to me, if you have $1,000 a month of expenses and you make $1,000, so you come in with a net zero endpoint, that isn't rich. That's sustainability. You've sustained yourself through the month. You've got nothing to feed into the next month in terms of a, a net profit or a sure net you positive. Sure you do. You just decrease your costs, right? And, and everything you've talked about, you know, is all the things, the student debt or whatever, all of those things are optional, right? If you have food in your belly and a roof over your head, you are sustainable. Anything above that. Right, right. No, no, I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. No, I agree with that. But you're not rich. You're sustainable, and if your definition of getting through the month includes things like I have to pay for a car, I have to fund education, I have to fund health, care, uh, health insurance, um, and all these other factors which are Western requirements, then it doesn't mean you're rich because you can also fund those things. It means you're sustainable at a level required by society in that region. Because if you lived in France or you lived in Sweden or you lived in Canada, the numbers change, but a lot of those things are not required costs that you would bear. You would bear them through taxation, but you wouldn't bear educational costs in Finland, for example. You wouldn't bear uh, medical costs in those regions as well. I'm not saying they're good or bad. You're bearing them through taxation. But at the end of the day, if at the end of the month, that's what you end up with at the, you know, you have a roof over your head, food in your belly, clothes on your back, you're not dying because you've got health care and you're learning something. If those are the basics, you can achieve that in Finland for dollar X 
and you can achieve that in Detroit for dollar Y. And if you only achieve that and nothing more, I argue you're not rich, you're sustained. All right, so I want to move on from this because clearly we could have this discussion for a while to come, but you've given the perfect springboard to the second uh, posit uh, of the evening, uh, and that is that if you are rich, assuming we have decided that we are rich, whatever that uh, deciding is, do you have a responsibility to those who are not? Um, and and you, you summed it up really nicely there where you said it's it's all about the standard of where you are. So if I if where I live, suburban Atlanta, if if X is considered sustainable, and I have X plus one, then I'm rich. So we we say that. Do I now owe? Do I owe? Am I duty bound to give some point of plus one to somebody else who isn't rich? And if you're looking across the table at the person whose X is the same as yours. And it's pretty easy to say, no, I don't, I don't owe them anything. But if you look across the world to somebody whose X is, is 0.05% of your X, then it's, it, it becomes one of those things where you, you start to see a moral imperative to give some of your plus one when your plus one could be, sustain them for years. So let's talk about that. Do we, uh, let's posit that we're rich. Okay. Well, I've just changed it. The three of us are rich. Do we owe the Ugandan orphan anything? Do we owe the Guatemalan uh, day laborer anything? Seth, I'll let you go first. Okay. Well, I believe so because I believe there's a moral imperative imparted by my faith that says that. But also, even if you want to break it down and you want to talk about self-interest, if you keep more than you need and that more is preventing someone else from getting what they need, then yes, because one, it will be safety for you if there's more people who have their need. How You know, most wars are fought because somebody has something the other people don't, whether that's real or imagined, that's usually the case. So if I help somebody else move from not enough to enough, while at the same time keeping myself in at least enough, then I've made the world a better place because I've eased suffering and I've increased joy and I've brought more people to the table. So, you know, yes, you have a duty to help those who are less fortunate than yourself. Um, but at the same time, you have the wisdom to know who to help. So, you know, it's like where I work, man, I hate when I have to leave my office and, you know, like if I want to walk over, it's a few blocks away to 7-Eleven or if I want to go to one of the places to eat. And I mean, you're just like accosted by people. Hey, man, you got some change? Hey, can you spare a dollar? And I'm just like, dude, I mean, you've asked me like a hundred times. And if I gave a dollar to everybody who asked me, then I wouldn't have a place and I would be out there asking for a dollar too. So you have to have the wisdom to know that you can't help everyone. So how do you help, but at the same time, maintain what you have so that you can help yourself and others later? Miles, your thoughts? Well, this is a very complicated one. <clears throat> My initial reaction would be, of course, I would help somebody out. If they needed help, I'll help them. The problem with initial reactions is they're often naive and they're often not necessarily best serving the recipient. 
Um, you know, I, I grew up in a country where the government pretty much helped anybody out. If you didn't have a job, you could get welfare. You could get the dole. Um, you know, you could never, there was never a reason why you'd be ever down on your luck. And what I saw with that was the, the after effect that was disgusting, that we created a, a segment of society that chose not to want to work, that chose not to want to raise themselves up because they, they became addicted to this generosity that was being provided to them by government. Um, that wasn't all of them. I don't want to put everybody in the same class, but unfortunately, if you ever want to defeat motivation to do anything, then uh, win the lottery. Because I guarantee you'll get, you'll, you won't get out of bed at before 10 o'clock every day because you don't need to anymore. And you won't go and learn another language unless it's of interest because you don't need to, you know. And you won't, you won't better yourself. It, you know, you'll, you'll want to, you'll mean well, you'll try and do it, but really you won't. You'll probably end up playing video games all day. I mean, that's just how human nature is. You, you, at some point, I don't want to – I want to help somebody in a way that actually – meets their human psychological needs and that would be to give them a path out of the predicament they're in and to show them a road that can they can take on their own where they own their own journey and they own their own outcome and I didn't give it to them so that they they didn't treat it like it was theirs I don't want to I don't want to give them something like that however if they're dying on the side of the street I'm going to give them water I'm going to give them food I'm going to take them under my wing and I'm going to make sure they're okay but then I'm going to put them back on the road and I'm going to tell them how to get to where they need to go it's not my job to drive them there and that and that's that's the libertarian in me it is faith based but it is not in, in a pure reading of doctrine that just says, if I've got more than I need, give it to somebody. Because I guarantee that's not going to help that person out. So I, I, I would say that that's, in general, where I come from. There's a much more complicated side of this, which has to do with why, if we talk in terms of other countries, why other countries are in poverty, why other countries are not able to fend for themselves, and... And that's a whole other topic we can talk about because most of it, we're actually the reason why it's like that. And it's not because we're giving them a lot of aid. It's because we're doing a lot of things we shouldn't be doing. But having said that, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that aside because that could open a whole Pandora's box. But, but yeah, that's my position. I will help somebody out so that they will not be harmed, but I will not give them gen generosity for the sake of it because I think it's a negative. All right, and that's uh, 50 minutes. We're out of time. Uh, no, <laughs> it really is, but I'm going to keep going. Um, uh, I agree with parts of both of what you've said. Uh, I think that um, I, I intentionally use the word moral imperative there because there is no, uh, so far anyway, there is no governing law. There's no, there's no agreed upon practice for that. Uh, and in fact, you know, in some cases, uh, the, the rich white person is vilified for going to help out the, the poor brown person, uh, which I just, I don't understand that. And, and there's the, the attitude, if you can't do everything, you shouldn't do anything. Uh, I don't understand that either. I think, um, that if you can help, you should help. Is it a is it a moral imperative? I, I I'm not sure that I'm willing to go that way for everybody. For me, yes, it is. 
uh, again, falling back on my Judeo-Christian beliefs, my God tells me that it is my responsibility to help the least of these. That's, that's not an option for me. That is not something that I can choose to do whether I want to. It's not something I can choose to do when it's convenient. I am commanded by my God to help those who need help. And I take that seriously. Um, having been the recipient of other people's help for so much of my life, for about the first 18 years of my life, um, I literally would not be here today had it not been for other people giving of their excess through direct donations, but uh, through uh, social safety nets, through charities. Uh, I, I sit here today bouncing on my ball because other people didn't, didn't look away. So I have a different opinion maybe than some others about that. It's much more, it hits much more home to me. Uh, and I think we've talked about it uh, before. One of my personal rules for life, I, I call them nuts, non-negotiable, unalterable truths, N-U-T. Um, one of my nuts uh, is that if I have it and you ask for it, you get it. No judgment, no questions, yes. So that bum on the street you got a dollar. If I have it, he gets it. Even if he asked me yesterday and the day before, that's just a rule I've built for myself to to feed my own, um, maybe even you could call it irrational, need to give. But I also give through charities um, to people local and to people across the country. I give to my church. I give to non-faith-based uh, things. I give to uh, uh, um, wounded warrior projects. I give to uh, you know anything. The you know every year when when you're at the at the local mall and they have the angel tree and you and you you do the thing where you buy the kid a bicycle or a, a coat or whatever. I I I consider those imperatives to do that. Not a nice thing to do. I will. You know, forego something I want because I have everything I need. And that's the reason that I put myself in that level. I have everything I need and more. All of my needs are, are, are met from now on. I mean, I can't, it would be a pretty dramatic course of events for me not to have my basic needs met for the rest of my life. So I'm in a position now where I have, I'm living in the excess. And for me to keep that excess, is, is not only irresponsible, it's immoral. I must give of that excess because I'm living in excess. Miles, you and I differ on what excess means, but even so, let, even if we agreed on that, I, I think that we all have sort of this, this thing in us. Maybe it's American, maybe it's Western, maybe it's human, I don't know. But I think most people have something in them that, that compels them to give of their excess. The problem is we have so redefined excess over the years that excess means once I have everything I'll ever want, then I'll give. So I, I don't want to, we don't want to take the time to go further. We could definitely do a, a part two of this and talk about uh, the culture of poverty, right? There is a culture of poverty where people cannot get out of it until they change their culture. Whether that's the culture of their country or the culture of their family or the culture of the block on which they grew up, they have to break culture before they'll ever get out of poverty. As you know, Dave Ramsey says, there are poor people and there are broke people. A broke man has no money. A poor person has no ambition. 
and the the broke is a temporary state of affairs. Poor, poor is a lifestyle. Um, and yes, absolutely, there are there needs to be training. There needs to be education. There needs to be a change of culture. South Africa is has been poor for fifty years because South Africa has a culture of poverty. The warlords take, and the people don't rise up because they have been beaten down for generations, and they don't even know they can rise up. That is a culture of poverty that has to be broken. And will my forty-five dollar a gift uh, a month gift through Compassion International change that? I don't know. I don't know, but it will change this one person, this one kid who gets medication that she needs and food that she needs every month because of my $45. My $45 changes her life. How can you not call me rich? Well, let me just, let me ask a question here. I mentioned a story before about a friend of mine, the bank teller who became the doctor. So if, if you had $500,000 worth of excess wealth, would you give that to somebody? I would give large chunks of it, yes. I don't know about all of it, but definitely most of it. What if the currency equivalent of that could be given? So let me tell you why I'm asking that question. That's exactly what it costs for a person to become a doctor. In terms of medical school, they have to do the time, but the cost is probably about half a million dollars. So if you have half a million dollars, what has more efficacy here? To give that to people who need it to eat and you give it to thousands of people and they eat so they don't die, but then they've got to eat you know, the next day and the day after that and the day after that, or you fund somebody who becomes a doctor and saves a thousand of people from smallpox or polio or whatever, where's the greatest efficacy? See, the, the way I look at it is, and this, and I've always tried to work out why I think this way, and it's probably, I'll, I'll be honest, I think it's an ego thing. I think it's a very Jungian ego thing. But the day I die, and I can't give anymore because I'm dead, if I've helped educate a doctor, or educated a nurse, or I've, or I've taken a student and I've given them a chance for a, to be an engineer and to break free of that cycle then that lives on beyond me. And isn't that worth more than giving them money? I, I don't know that we can say what's worth more. I mean, it, that, that goes back to what I was saying. If you can't do everything, why do anything? That is absolutely doing something, and that is valuable, and, and that has value beyond what we can measure. Uh, but I, don't, I, I balk anytime somebody tries to say, what is the more effective charity? Charity in itself is the thing. Well, yeah. I mean, I can't do more than give a little bit of extra money. Well, I can. I mean, I can give everything and then I'd be in that situation. So right. that's probably not going to help. Um, but what I can do is I can give education. I can give time. I can give information. I can help people break free of the same shackles, which when I was 20 years old and looking down the barrel at, I would have fallen prey to if I went down road A instead of road B. Um, it's those sort of lessons to me are the richest gifts I can give. And they're not, it's not money. It's, it's a path out. Yeah. Because the, the problem with giving is, and this is, I've been burned by this so many times. Somebody needs something. 
So, hey, it's like, hey, I'm paying my bills, got a little bit in the bank, you know, my debt's going down, I've got some money. It's like, here, let me help you with that. And then they learned absolutely nothing and they're back in a worse space because their need was met there. And I mean, I could have done, you know, I could have done more educated them, hey, whatever. But, you know, so that's, I've been, I still try to give some, but man, I find it so hard because if you're not at the place where you're going to do the right thing. Oh, well this, oh, look, my needs were met so I can continue down this same destructive path. And it's only going to get worse because now I expect you to help me, um, make up for my poor decisions so I don't have to. And then that puts a bind on me. And anyway, and so that that's the distinction between giving and helping. Giving doesn't always help and helping doesn't always involve giving. Uh, of right. money, you know, I've I've had people in my life that I had to cut off and say no, I, I I will not be your financial IV that you come and plug into and rehydrate periodically. I did it for a while, and now I'm loving you enough to not give you, but I'm still going to help you. And and Miles, I think that's some of what you were touching on too. It's not always about money. It's not always about uh, financial. I think the important thing is, and one of the reasons that I that I give. Um, you know, I talked about Compassion International. Is is that money actually helping that little girl on the card? I don't know. But it is helping the little girls in my home to know that there are people who would give everything they have to have a fraction of, of what they have. It is helping the, the little girl in my home to understand that there's a bigger world than herself. I don't give to that little orphan for her sake i give to that little orphan for my child's sake and if i can help both of them great but i want to raise my children to believe to understand that the first thing you should do is try to meet needs then you should try to have access that seems pretty reasonable to me yeah i think that's a that's a very reasonable uh philosophy because we don't want to be a burden onto others, so we have to be sustainable to ourselves. And then we want to be a help to others, so we have to be able to give what, what we have after than that. And to me, the greatest resource we have is time. It's not money. We can make an infinite amount of money. We have a finite number of years on this planet. And we have to give those years very carefully in a way that has the greatest ROI. It's, I know it's a, it's a callous business way of looking at something, but if I can educate a teacher to teach the teacher and then have that person go and spread that message, it's far greater efficacy. Yeah. And so that I would love to do that. If I have to pay to keep them fed during the process, well, that's fine. But as long as they're going to be able to pass something down the line, everyone wins. You know, we all see the signs as we're driving down the streets that, you know, the lottery, the, the lotto is now $800 million, right? And and we all think about it, whether whether you're the hard most hardcore fundamentalist who would never consider gambling, you still think about, man, what would I do with $800 million? Um, when when I think about those things, my, my goal, my dream, um, and, and this may sound silly to you, but it's true. Uh, I want to be able to pay off mortgages for people um, who need it. People who, through no, no fault of their own, got stuck in a bad situation. Uh, churches who are about to fold because their their loan 
cost tripled. Uh, uh, missionaries who went off to another country and are losing everything they have at home because they're not there. Uh, veterans who can no longer work. One of my dreams in life is to save enough money, have enough income to start paying off other people's mortgage. That's my that's my retirement goal. My retirement goal is not about um, not working anymore uh, so that I can enjoy life. My retirement goal is to pay off other people's mortgages. That's what I want to do. And that's something I'm passionate about. I'm nowhere near that right now. But that's what I'm working toward. That's my why. When I look at my big goal, why I want to have millions of dollars in the bank, not so I can have millions of dollars, but so that I can give millions of dollars. That excites me. I know I'm, I'm unusual in that, uh, but if we had, you know, <laughs> if we as a people could outgive the government, how, what would that world look like, right? Think about it. The, everything the government spends is your money anyway. What if we just gave it instead? We wouldn't need all these social programs because the people would be giving. They would be solving that problem, and we wouldn't have all the government waste. We wouldn't have all the overspend. Anyway, that's that, that's my um, uh, I don't know if libertarian even is the right word uh, uh, fantasyarian because uh, that's never going to happen. But that's that's my utopian vision is for the people to outgive the government, not to downsize the government, just to make them obsolete. Well, let me give you a recommended book for the week, <laughs> um, and it's it sort of supports that. I uh, I haven't read this yet. I actually heard about it today. I'm in. It, it's very interesting. The book is called Confessions of an Economic Hitman by a guy by the name of John Perkins, and his story is very interesting. He uh, in the seventies um, managed to avoid uh, going to Vietnam by joining the Peace Corps, and uh, he was a business school graduate. And uh, after he joined the Peace Corps, he had to somehow somebody from the NSA pulled him aside and he had a job interview with the NSA and he ended up working with them and was sent to other countries, particularly areas like in Latin America, Ecuador, Guatemala, um, El Salvador, those sort of regions. And he, for 10 years, he worked as a sort of a Peace Corps operative in those countries. But actually what he was was an NSA operative setting himself up to try to meet with the leaders of these areas and force them into deals that would not necessarily be to the benefit of their country, but would be to the benefit of the United States. And uh, I've heard a lot of these sort of stories about, you know, CIA operations in Latin America in the, in the, in the 80s and all this sort of thing. This guy writes from the guy who did it. And when you start seeing what what was done back then to destabilize governments for the benefit of the United States so that those people who were maybe on the United Nations boards and, and uh, IMF and things like that would vote within the interest of the USA because they got a loan from the US to go and hire Halliburton or Bechtel or whatever to go and build oil refineries in their region, all these sorts of things. This, connected, complicated um, network of things that eventually became beneficial to the leader of that region and an economic hardship to everybody who lived in it that forced them into third world status that you start realizing, you know, as much as I could give, I could give 
thousands and thousands of dollars to some kids in Guatemala and El Salvador, and it won't make one little bit of difference because every single time we're manipulating the puppet strings at the top to control that their, their, their country will never allow them to break free of their hardships because it's in our interest that they be in hardship. That's the biggest problem I've got. And I know that sounds conspiratorial and very meta and big picture and all this sort of deep, dark, you know, guys in suits sort of stuff. But I'm not saying it's a reason why I shouldn't give to that kid in El Salvador, but I'd prefer to get that kid out of El Salvador and give him a chance to have a, an education in the future because I don't think he's going to get it where he is, regardless of what I do. So I, anyway, just, I, I just searched Audible. There is uh-huh. uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, to, released 2005. New Confessions of an Economic Hitman, released in 2016, uh, both by John you want the first? Start with the first one. The, the second one is where he takes the – he goes and does the same study on newer economies that are more recent. But I think that the first one sets the ground rules for what this is all about. Yeah. And it's sad because when you think about it, we've got 7.3 billion people on this planet. And of that, less than half of them are living be- above a poverty level. And there's a reason for that. And it's not because those countries don't have good people or don't have good natural resources. It's because we keep them down. And so I want to I help these kids, but you're never going to be able to do it if we keep keeping them down. Because it's in our interest to keep them down because it makes us rich. Yeah, I don't. That's not not a road I want to go down. Uh, <laughs> I didn't think so, especially uh, an hour and eight minutes into the show. Um, any final thoughts on on either of these two things before we go on? on you know, m- keeping the scope on um, helping a brother out. Well, you know, it's it's like you said. There are a lot of ways to help. Money is one of them, and mu- just like any tool, money can be used correctly or incorrectly. And, yeah, you know, what Seth said. <laughs> props to those people who go to South Africa and dig wells and and teach uh, engineering to Bush children. You know that those people are definitely giving as well. Uh, that is that's not giving of your excess. That's giving of your everything. Um, and uh, the world needs more people like them. I'm not a people like them. Um. In, in the same way that I'm not a soldier, I'm not going to pick up a, a, a weapon and defend my country. That doesn't mean I don't have the utmost respect for those that do. I'm just not one of them. I feel the same way about those who go. So I'm, I'm never going to tell you that you're not doing enough if you're not packing up everything you have and joining the Peace Corps. Um, but um, everybody can do something. And, you know, give a dollar to that bum on the street. So what if he takes it and spends it on alcohol? That may be the only joy he's had in a week. You know, that may be the brief moment of, of lift from the misery of his daily existence. That's helping in a sense. It's not pulling him out of it, but it's giving him a little Novocaine for a little while. Well, I want to, I want to hear what the audience has to say about this topic, because I'm, I think there are going to be so many different facets and angles on it that it will just be fascinating to read what feedback we get. Well, the one thing we can be certain of is I'll be wrong. Um, 
Yeah, all the feedback we get is I'm wrong. And even though Chris hasn't done this show in two years, somebody will write in and say they agree with Chris. Um, so <laughs> that's how that's going to go. <laughs> so, Seth, it seems a little silly based on the, the depth of discussion we've had, but uh, I will continue with it anyway. What happened this week in history? All right, Mark. Well, on April the 10th, 1981, the space shuttle launch was delayed. So during preparations for the maiden voyage of the Columbia Space Shuttle, NASA engineers were monitoring a glitch in the shuttle's computer system. Well, synchronization between the main and backup flight control computers was found to be the culprit um, because gears weren't synchronizing. Two gears were discovered to be out of sync. The repair took at least a day to resolve. When liftoff was rescheduled two days later, the countdown proceeded with no further setbacks. So a computer glitch delayed the maiden launch of the Space Shuttle Columbia Mark, and that happened this week in history. And now back to you. Computer glitch and gears are not words we typically put together. So this was an analog synchronization process. Something happened over here which turned a knob, which connected to a gear that turned another knob over here in 1981. And it caused these two computers to not be in sync. Right. And so because of that, you know, yay backups. So we uh, went to space using gears. (laughs) Think about that. We certainly didn't fly a Boeing 737 MAX 8 to space. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just recently finished a book called Skunk Works uh, written by John... Ben Rich, Ben Rich, who was the uh, um, CEO, whatever, the leader of the the Lockheed Skunk Works. It was written, I think, in '94. He died in '95, so it was it was a lot of a little bit of uh, um, uh, legacy uh, management there. Uh, but it was uh, Kelly Johnson was the guy who's opened the the Skunk Works, and Ben Rich was his. Um, successor and so he talks about everything from the u2 to the uh, sr-71 which interesting i didn't know was the rs-71 but president johnson misspoke when he announced it to the nation called it the sar so instead of correcting the president they changed every piece of paper that had rs written on it Uh, (laughs) because you can't tell the president he's wrong um anyway is that why tim cook's going to change his name to tim apple could be could be (laughs) Uh, so uh, read that book. It's it's fascinating. Uh, and think about the things that they were doing. Like I said, this was written in 1994, right? So it is already 25 years old. Uh, and they're talking about the high-tech stuff here, the, the space shuttle here, 1981. That's uh, uh, help me, people who are better at math than I am, 38 years ago? Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And and all we've been doing is just sort of taxing around space since then. Um, anyway, that don't get me started on what we should be doing in space. Uh, anyway, that's fascinating. We went to the we went to space with gears. Um, interesting thing about the I think it was the U two. Um, that was it might have been the 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 Blackbird. One of those two planes uh, was designed to work at altitude. Right, and and w- there's a difference in pressure between up there and down here. When it's on the tarmac, and you're pumping fuel into it, it's leaking fuel almost as fast as you're pumping it in. But when you get up to altitude, all the seals fit, and it seals up. So while it's taking off, it is dumping hundreds of gallons of fuel on the ground until it reaches a certain level. 
the engineering involved a to figure that out and you know in, in a time when the epa wouldn't allow that to happen today um it's just th- those sort of things read the book skunk works by ben rich if you if you geek out on that sort of stuff you'll really enjoy that book free ad there for audible uh and now seth what do you have to close the show in style all right well this is a cool website um it's just triviaquestions.co you go there and it just puts a trivia question on the screen you click the answer it shows you you don't have to sign in or anything they're just there they're random trivia questions you can click view more and get a whole new list you can specialize i only want food trivia and so anyway triviaquestions.co for all of your you know part you know ever have everybody put their phones down except one person who does this and you know have a conversation instead of just ever see who can google fastest Right, and so it you don't actually type in the answer. No. It tells you the answer. You just have to go, you know, I right. do that. Interesting. Yeah, I, I've, I often say the cell phone ruined the bar bet forever. You know, it used to be we would argue for years over what the lyrics to Hang On Sloopy were. And, <laughs> and now, you know, five seconds later, you open it up, and now what else do you tell you? you got nothing else to talk about. We would talk about that every time we got together for years. And now it's over, and you're like, oh, now what? So, triviaquestions.co might be the answer to that. Yep. They're pretty interesting. So, as Seth, uh, no, Miles uh, said, uh, we are interested to hear what you, the listening audience, have to say about this. This was a, um, I like to call it a throwback. This is the kind of show that we used to do a lot of. These, uh, And last week, too, the, the no, uh, no answers, just questions thing. Uh, the throwing out a deep thought sort of thing and having a discussion about it. Uh, you know, we, we've, we've tried to have some tight topic-based things for the last couple of years, and, and that's certainly a good thing. But it's nice to have these long-form sort of existential discussions from time to time. Uh, at least it's fun for us. What do you think? Uh, would you would you rather we do a two hour rambling show again? I think probably not, but maybe. Uh, let us know what you think. Um, but also, what do you what do you think about this? Um, I, I'm more interested. I don't want to say that I'm I'm going to discount anybody from this country, but I'm more interested in hearing people from other countries uh, or people like uh, Miles who who have spent uh, portions of their life, uh, lives in multiple countries and multiple cultures. I'm interested to hear what you say, because I can't, I can't see the world the way you see it. I am, I'm, I am a human monoculture. I grew up, you know, within 800 miles of where I sit right now. And so I, I don't really have any different, uh, understanding. So educate me on, on what the rest of the world thinks about we fat, rich Americans. I'm interested to know elementop.com click the contact us button at the top of the page answer the world's hardest captcha fill out the form there that will send an email that gets priority in my end basket i will read it before i read anything else uh send an email to geekrant at elementop.com that goes to all three of us instead of just me or you can uh, if you want to have your voice broadcast narrow casted i think is the actual word uh, right alongside mine you can go, dial 559 imop uh, and leave us a voicemail on our google voice line and we'll play it look forward to hearing what you have to say uh miles seth thanks for being um uh, erudite and intelligent people that i can have these sort of discussions with i can't have this discussion with just about just everybody i know it, it takes a special person i thank you guys for being those special people um and we appreciate the hard work that you put into each and every one of these shows uh, in the, the production and, and the planning and all of that. Thank you for that. 
listener you are the most important person you're the reason we do this so uh thank you for that and uh don't forget to throw money us at uh, money at us patreon.com slash and uh that's it for this episode of the geek rant remember pay for what you like